Thomas Green here with Ethical Marketing Service. On the podcast today, we have Kuda Biza. Kuda, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be here. It is my pleasure. Would you like to take a moment and introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Uh, I always like to tell people that I'm a serial entrepreneur who focuses on building profitable businesses that fight hunger and education. So, you know, I'm an I'm a entrepreneur at heart, but uh, I always make sure that our businesses have a social mission that uh, we're helping to solve. And hunger and education are the two issues that I'm really passionate about out of the so many global issues that are out there. Um, so, so we always try to find a way to uh, align the business, whichever it is, to either hunger or education or both, if we can. So, so that's who I am. Would you say that's your reason why? Yeah, it, it is my, my purpose and my calling. Uh, I see myself as a problem solver, right? Every entrepreneur is a, sol is a problem solver. And I'm not just focused on solving the problem for our customer, although that's the primary problem you want to solve if you want to stay in business. But I also want to solve some of the bigger, you know, social issues that we face as mankind, because I'm a firm believer that it shouldn't be just left for governments or nonprofits to do. I actually think that entrepreneurs are, are the best uh, suited uh, individuals to be able to actually help solve these issues. So, so for me, that's my purpose, launch businesses and uh, make an impact. Uh, one of the things that we talked about um, having a bit of a conversation on was non-believable. And um, mm -hmm. the reason I bring it up is because you mentioned about the fact that you're um, having an impact on or your one of your ambitions is to feed. Is it a million people? We actually changed the ambition now. It's 10 million in three years. So <laughs> is it because um, you already hit that goal? No, we, we haven't yet, but we, we are on a fast track too. Um, so last year alone, we, we, we provided meals to over 300,000 people. And this year, based on our trajectory, we think we can four to five X that number. So if you think about it, if we four X it, it's 1.2 million. So we'd have already surpassed that. And, you know, the goal was to do it by the end of 2022. So what we try to do is to always have a stretch goal because the stretch goal gets you outside of your comfort zone. And when you're outside of the comfort zone, that's how you grow. So um, in January, when we were looking at our performance for 2020, we made the bold, audacious uh, decision to actually say like, hey, in the next three years, can we feed 10 million people? And um, we've signed up for it. So, so that's the goal that we're now shooting for. Well, if it was a, a physical event that we were doing, I, I would be asking for an applause right now. So congratulations. Well done. Thank you. Uh, but I think people will be interested in is the story of Nunbelievable because um, I know I've heard and encourage other people to listen to um, your background. Um, so I've heard the window window cleaning example. But what I'd really like to get into is how Nunbelievable was formed and how you went from well, it'd be interesting to know where you were at that particular time and then how you formed that company and what was the inspiration for that? Sure. So, you know, in life, you can never really connect the dots looking forward. It's only when you look back when you can connect the dots. So I'm going to highlight a couple of dots in my life's journey that really led to the creation of Unbelievable. And the first one is when I was in uni, right? And um, 
I, I had moved to America from Zimbabwe. I came to America with only $40 in my pocket. I didn't really know what was going to happen. I was on a scholarship to, to study in America. And um, having grown up in Zimbabwe and having witnessed, you know, extreme cases of poverty, um, you know, people my age, you know, who weren't attending school, I felt very privileged and blessed to be getting an American education, to be on a scholarship to, to get this uh, type of education. So with a huge heart and desire to make a difference, I decided to start a T-shirt company with the whole premise that we would donate 20% uh, of our profits to educate kids in Africa. Now, the reason why I decided to do this, it was because this was my way of giving back because by getting a scholarship, others had given me an opportunity to get an education and knowing what I knew about the challenges in Africa, I wanted to provide opportunities for others who weren't able to get a primary uh, school education because in a lot of the developing countries, unlike the UK or the US where primary school uh, public education is free, in Africa, that's not the case. So with 150 bucks, and um, with a lot of passion, I started this T-shirt company and we were able to educate hundreds of children in Africa through that business. And that was my first taste of social impact, right? It was starting this uh, small little company in the dorm room and, you know, growing it and scaling it and educating hundreds of children in Zimbabwe, in Tanzania, in South Africa and Ghana. So, so that was the first key dot, right, in the non-believable journey because it got me in the social entrepreneurial space. The next two, two follow-ups on that one because I think I don't want to yeah. brush over this point because I think it's important. Um, the first one is you mentioned um, coming from a different country and um, mm -hmm. essentially um, feeling the obligation to, um, well, for lack of a better term, give back. Um, I find that I think there are actually studies on this as well, which is um, immigrants are more likely to uh, become millionaires um, than the normal person is. Um, do you think that's true? And what do you think is the actual principle behind that? What can people use as a um, if you were to sum it up and say this is the reason behind that? What would you say is the reason as to why that's the case? Well, I didn't know about that statistic, so I'm actually learning about it today. So, so thank you for sharing. But what I can share from just my personal experience and, and watching other people uh, like me who've come from other countries into America, um, you know, it's like you're thrown, uh, you know, out of the pan, out of the frying pan into the fire, right? And you you have to learn how to survive. So there's there's a there's a different sense of urgency, right? Um, we also have no, you know, sense of entitlement, right? If you think about, you know, some of the American citizens or like if you're in the UK, some of the British citizens, you know, you have government benefit, you have other things that you can benefit from. But over here, you, you know, if you're an immigrant, you, you don't have access to that. So you're pushed to, 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 to really go out there and, and, uh, and, and survive, right, and, and, and do things that you wouldn't probably normally do if you probably had that cushion behind you, uh, but because you don't have that, you, you, you just have that extra drive and extra motivation to, to push you. Uh, so for you me specifically... Um, would you say it's necessity? It, it is necessity, and it's just this quest to survive and, and, and thrive, right? So think about it. If I was to give you, let's say, $40 or 40 pounds, 
and throw you in a new country by yourself. You have no relatives, nobody you know. Do you think you would do things you've never done before um, as a way for you to survive and just never be in that situation before? It would be like a no excuses uh, mentality, wouldn't it? Yeah, you you know, every second counts, everything counts, you know, like normally, you know, you might be like, ah, I'm not going to go work at Starbucks. I worked at Starbucks because I needed the money. I needed to go from 40 to 100, whatever. I needed to, I needed to buy my toothpaste. I needed to buy other things. So I, I was hungry and ready to take up, uh, you know, anything. And through that, I think there's a, there's a whole notion of compound interest of action, right? So if you're consistently taking that type of action on a consistent basis, similar to like the way compound interest works in finance, I think the same is true to, uh, to your actions because then these small actions you take consistently will then lead to this exponential um, you know, lift in, in going from point A to point B. So I think that's really the nature where you, you, you have no choice but to, to, to survive and you, you turn into probably someone you, you didn't know you had inside of you. And, and it's nature, uh, mainly because our brain was, you know, uh, it's wired for survival, not to thrive. So when you find yourself where your survival is, is being threatened, right? You know, you, you kick into uh, a, another gear and, um, and you do things that you've never done before. And I'll share one funny example. There was one time when I was walking on the street and a dog just came out of nowhere and started chasing me. Like, I tell you what, I ran faster than I thought I could ever ran. And what's, what's even more funnier is I leaped over a fence, right? Because I, I had to. It's, it's either that or the dog is having a slice of my thigh um, in order to survive. But in a normal scenario where if you just say like, hey, Kuda, can you jump the fence? I, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it because maybe mentally I'm like, oh, you know, can I even do it? There's a little bit of self-doubt. But here it was kind of like life or death uh, situation and adrenaline, you know, was kicking in and I did it. And it potentially saved me from what could have turned out to be a very bad injury. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess sometimes as immigrants, we're thrown into that type of scenario where we have this dog, right, chasing us, and we just have to figure out how to run as fast as we can and jump that fence in order for us to save our lives. Mm, good analogy. The second uh, question um, was, what happened to the t-shirt business? Is it still going? And um, if not, then what happened with it? So <laughs> the t-shirt business was... Uh, strategically acquired by my wife and you know she she kind of like took over uh the business as other businesses just started coming into my portfolio she's more of a fashion-centric person for me i had literally created the business just out of the pure uh desire to have a sustainable vehicle to fund my uh, philanthropic ventures uh, but she really had a passion of really taking that business and and building it into something else so afr clothing still exist. And, um, you know, my, my wife really leads the day to day. I'm involved from, you know, a strategic level here and there, um, and maybe leveraging some of my relationships. But, you know, from the day to day operations and uh, the impact that they're now doing, it's, it's really my wife who's who's leading that. That's great. So how long has that been going for? 
Um, we launched in 2009, so this is our 11th year. Well done. So you've uh, you've gone against the statistics there because um, I'm sure you're aware of it, but it's like every, I think it's 1% to 3% of businesses don't make the 10-year year. Yeah. Um, yeah, do go on because I interrupted your your thought process with your story. Yeah. So what's interesting was that that business that I started when I was in uni opened up the door to the next dot, which was I got hired into this big Fortune 500 company. And what they really liked on my CV, on my resume, was the fact that I was an entrepreneur, right? I had been able to start something meaningful by bootstrapping, you know, my, my, my own little resources. So I think the HR representative was like, wow, imagine if we were to bring this type of uh, guy into a multi-billion dollar business where he now has the financial resources, the human, you know, the talented pool of people that we have, the brands. Imagine what this uh, guy could do. So when I was still finishing up my uh, master's degree, I got hired to go work for this uh, big conglomerate. So I was fortunate enough in that regard because the day I finished classes, right? I finished on a Friday, had my graduation like over the weekend. Monday, I was in the office, I was working. And the job they gave me was quite interesting too, which was to create new businesses from scratch. So they literally were like, Kuda, your job is to identify opportunities create a business plan. And then once you create a business plan, if the CEO and the chairman like it, they'll give you the resources, you build the business, but the way you need to build the business is you need to bring in a team that's then gonna manage that business because we need to remove you from that business so that you can go create the next thing. So your job is not to, to build this so that you manage it, but it's build it, build a playbook, bring in a management team, and then you do the same thing and you just keep on building businesses for us. So for a kid who's just graduating you know, out of uh, college, it was kind of like a dream job, right? Because I'll just walk in and I'll be like, okay, so what opportunities can we pursue? So I started looking into trends. I started looking into uh, different things. So for example, baby boomers are becoming older and they're going to retire. So what are some of the things that they're going to need and potentially extrapolate some of the things that um, they're going to need uh, down the road into potential uh, business opportunities for us. Also started looking into main key consumer pain points. So we'd do research studies where we would go into houses and talk to, you know, moms, you know, dads, and really understand from the moment that they wake up to the moment that they go to sleep, what does their day look like? What are some of the pain points that they face and how can we solve uh, some of those pain points? And one of the brands we had in our portfolio was a brand called Crockpot. It's a slow cooker. And um, as we were, you know, talking to customers, we realized that, number one, a lot of people had the slow cooker in America. Like it had high household penetration. I mean, we're selling tens of millions of slow cookers a year, year over year, right? Number two, people weren't using them as often as they would like. So for us, we're like, wow, like we already have a huge installed base, but people are admitting that, hey, I don't use it as much as I would like. And we dug into why. 
And what we learned at that point in time was that it was just inconvenient in the sense that for, for you know, moms, which was really kind of like our target customer avatar, for her to use a slow cooker, she had to go buy the ingredients at the store. She had to chop it up for that specific recipe in the morning, get all these things done. And if you think about the toughest time for a mom to eke out even 10 extra minutes, it's in the morning because she has to get ready uh, to go to work. She has to get the kids ready. She has to make breakfast. She has to do all these different things and then head out to go to work. Now, think about also then preparing dinner in the slow cooker. She doesn't have the time to do it. And then um, the question, what's for dinner tonight, honey, is asked every single day. So for us, it was a big opportunity because if you think about it, 365 times a year, the question is asked, what's for dinner tonight? You multiply that by the number of households in America, 120 million plus, it's billions of times people are asking, what's for dinner tonight, honey? So for me, it, I, I was like, okay, wow, this is an opportunity because number one, the frequency is, is high, right? People are asking what's for dinner tonight all the time. We have a high household penetration and we just need to solve the issue of convenience. So the idea came about, uh, which is dot number two, to start uh, a, a frozen meal uh, delivery business where we would create these uh, recipes that we knew people loved to make in their slow cooker, but would get all the ingredients, would chop them up and have it as a ready-to-go packet where the only thing that mom had to do in the morning was take that, you know, frozen box, uh, the frozen meal kit out of the freezer, put it in the slow cooker, add water, and just out because all the sauce and that. whatever was already in it and, and, you know, fixed in it. So that was one of the first ideas I worked on when I was in this company. And I had never launched a food business before, obviously, but I had to figure out how to do it. I hired recipe developers, chefs, had to deal with the USDA, all the regulators, identified a co-packer, and then we launched it as an online direct-to-consumer business. And the business took off with thousands of subscribers uh, very, very quickly. And um, we were able to have a strategic partnership with, with a company called Omaha Steaks, which is a big uh, at-home delivery steak company here in the U.S. And the business grew into like eight-figure numbers in less than uh, three years. Wow. So that was a key point for me in my journey, which is I had already the social impact piece in the bag, right? But then I was I I, I built a, a food-based e-commerce business from scratch. Um, you know, secondly, that 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 was uh, super successful. So it it really set me up. So after that, I then went on and spent maybe six seven years working on other things within that big multi-billion-dollar company. And while I was still working there, I get a call, and it's someone in New York City, and they go like, "Hey, Kuda." Um, you need to come for a meeting. There's this meeting that's happening and um, you just need to listen to this conversation. You know, we think you might be able to add value. So I was like, you know, it doesn't hurt. Let me just go and, 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 and talk and see, and see what they have to say. So anyway, I go there and they tell me like, oh, there was a man who was going to San Francisco. And while he was on the plane, he read about a group of nuns that were being evicted in San Francisco. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, 
where is this going? Like, I'm, I'm trying to connect the dots. And um, they go like, you know, the guy lands, he goes to the mission to, to help the nuns. And then, you know, he realizes that they were a few months behind rent. So they he covered their rent. He called a couple of his buddies. They, they pulled together about a million bucks. They called the landlord. They figured out the solution for the nuns by taking care of their accommodation and putting an offer to the, to the landlord. And then they realized that the nuns were baking cookies and selling the cookies at farmer's markets. But they were using the proceeds from the sales not to look after themselves, but instead to support a soup kitchen at their mission where they would be feeding hundreds of people every single day in San Francisco. So these nuns were super selfless. They were putting themselves after everybody else. And then the guy was like, wow, what if we take inspiration from the nuns? What if we then bring in a group of entrepreneurs, right? A couple of entrepreneurs who really know how to launch e-commerce based businesses, but have experience in social impact. Wouldn't that be nice? And then create a cookie company where we have a buy one, give one model. So now I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, it actually makes sense. And basically this group had identified me as the perfect candidate to take this vision and actually turn it into a business. Me and my business partner, Brian Dinesco, because we had built that uh, meal delivery business that I told you about. Um, and I also had the experience of the mission-based business uh, before. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow, talk about having to make a tough decision, right? I came to America with $40 in my pocket. I was able to get into corporate America. I've climbed the ladder. At the time I was leading an e-commerce division that was close to about a hundred million in revenue. You know, I, I make us, you know, a really good six figure salary. I have a house, like I'm living the American dream, right? For someone who came from, from where I am and you have the security of being in this big multi-billion dollar organization. And then I started thinking to myself, I'm like, you know what? I've spent over 11 years in this company. I've climbed the ladder. Yes, I've made a lot of successes, but am I fulfilled with the impact that I've made, right? I've been successful, but am I fulfilled with the impact that I've made? You were talking about my calling and my purpose, right? I was building multi-million dollar businesses in corporate America, but they didn't have a real direct impact model where I could really see like, hey, these are the lives that were changing. So for me, it was kind of like a crossroads as to do I stay in this like comfortable, uh, successful place or do I, you know, leave and get into a startup with all the risks of starting a startup and uh, building a business again from scratch? And for me, it was kind of like a no brainer because number one, um, I grew up in Zimbabwe and in 1992, I had a severe drought. And during that drought, um, everybody, regardless of who you were, experienced hunger in some way, shape or form. I knew what it was like to go to bed without having dinner as a kid. I knew what it was like going to school with no lunch. Because, you know, the, the, the drought was just severe. It was a severe drought. The New York Times actually called it the worst drought of the 20th century or something like that uh, as a New York uh, Times uh, headline when, when the drought hit. And as I was sitting there thinking to myself, I'm like, 
I've learned so much in corporate America. I think the best use of my talents, my knowledge and skills is to build this impact-based business where we can really now uh, fight hunger in a delicious way, right? And I then go like, okay, so who's this gentleman who went out to meet the nuns? And they go, it's Tony Robbins, the, the motivational speaker. <laughs> um, you know, so like, I'm just like, what? You know? I expect you to say that. Yeah, so, so I'm like, okay, you know, the, the opportunity to work with Tony and build this, I'm in. So I quit my job and then uh, partnered up with Tony Robbins and Michael Loeb. Michael Loeb is one of the guys who uh, is behind Priceline.com, super successful billionaire. And I was like, you know what? This is uh, literally a chance of a lifetime uh, from both a professional and personal perspective. Personal being, creating something that's meaningful to me, that makes a difference where we can touch the millions of lives we spoke about, but professionally to work with people that I admired and I felt like, hey, these are in, you know entrepreneurs that have really done some amazing stuff in their life. Uh, so so it, it, it came timely, but it wouldn't have happened if those two dots didn't happen. If I didn't have the mission-based business, which didn't open the doors to the big Fortune 500 company, and the opportunity I got at this big Fortune 500 company to build a meal uh, delivery business um, wouldn't have led to, to this one. So in life, you know, sometimes people, we just focus on what we're doing at the, in the moment, but sometimes we don't know how some of the actions are going to affect our future, both positively and negatively. So I think you should always be paying attention uh, to what you're doing now because it can help you uh, create uh, or unlock opportunities that wouldn't uh, be possible otherwise if you actually don't do it. So taking that risk as a college student and starting that, you know, T-shirt company and, you know, saying no to my friends to go out and party because I had to work has actually paid off because it it has led to, to, to so many things. So it's kind of like a domino effect where one thing knocked down and a, a whole host of other things uh, came down with it. So so that's the story of how Nonbelievable um, was started. That's oh, a great story. Um, I had a couple of questions, um, like follow-ups, which is when you got the call um, for the new job when you were just getting out of college, um, was that, were you headhunted or did you actively, or did you know someone or did you apply for it? So it was actually, it, it happened by mistake, I like to say, because there was a college fair in my school and I didn't know about it. So I was leaving class and I was going to uh, my, on, my, my, my on-campus job because I had a job on campus and I decided to take a shortcut through this hall. Right? I was like, ah, oh, it's quick if I just cut through this hall to get to the office rather than walk around, right? So I'm in flip-flops, I'm in shorts, like a regular college kid. And then I walk in and I see everybody's dressed in suits and like they're interviewing, they're like having their resumes. And I'm like, what is going on? So it was kind of like too late for me to then kind of like walk out because everybody kind of like looked because I kind of like opened the doors that, you know, in a very loud way that, you know, it caught people's attention. And I'm kind of like dressed like this, like hippie. Uh, I went to school in Florida, by the way. So like, you know, like, oh, is this kid just coming from the beach or whatever? 
And I was like, all right, well, let me just walk and I'm, I'm, I'm here. I might as well make the most of it. So then I just started walking around table by table. And then I got to the table for, for this company. And, you know, I was just talking to the HR lady and I was just telling her some of the things that I've done, right? I was telling her about my business and the things that I was studying and all that stuff. And at the end of that conversation, she basically gave me a business card and she was like, hey, call me on Monday and come in and let's let's do this right, right? Come in for a proper interview, bring your resume. <laughs> Don't and, worry, you'll be uh, Let's see what we could do. So, so that's how it happened. And then I went in on Monday and then we had the interview and then they, they offered me the job. That's amazing. Uh, it comes back to what you said about uh, the compound effect, like small things really do add up. Because you could yeah. have just changed your mind and walked out, right? Or Yep. Uh, I could have just gotten scared and closed the door and ran out. But I was yeah. like, hey, I'm, 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 I'm here. I might as well make the most of it and look at what happened. Yeah. The other question I had was um, the call you got when you were um, in your corporate job. Um, who, how did that come about? Where did that relationship come from? Because initially I thought it was from your company, but obviously that it wasn't that because you ended up leaving them, presumably. And the, yeah. the follow-up, if you wouldn't mind, is um, what was that like handing your notice in after that? Yeah, so the guy who called me was Brian Janesco. And I, I kind of like hinted to Brian earlier. He's the guy I worked with when I was building the meal delivery business. So Brian's background was that he created a meal delivery business uh, very early on before Blue Apron or like HelloFresh or all of these other guys came into play. He's actually considered the pioneer of meal delivery as we know it nowadays uh, here in the U.S. And... Um, he had sold his company to Nutrisystem. So now he was this bored, you know, millionaire who didn't really have anything to do. And I was working on building this business and I needed an advisor. So um, we were able to bring Brian in and he was able to kind of like help me um, as I was thinking through the concept and, and so forth and so forth. So he was kind of like my partner in crime as we were building this uh, in a sense. And, um, you know, his engagement ended because it was kind of like a time-based uh, advisory engagement. So when his contract ended, he left. And then I continued driving the business to, to, to the levels that I, I alluded to earlier. So him and I just kind of like stayed in touch here and there. And um, he went on and worked on other businesses and then uh, ended up working with Michael Loeb um, on some of the different investments that Michael was working on. So when Tony Robbins reached out to Michael Loeb, Michael Loeb was like, hey, Brian, you're the food guy. Take a listen to this uh, opportunity. And then Brian was like, well, yeah, this is an amazing opportunity. If we're going to be a part of this, we need to bring this guy because, you know, I know him and we worked on something together. And you're kind of like bringing the band back together again. So Brian and I were the co-founders of Nonbelievable. So we're now working and working together again. So he's the one who called me. And uh, handing your notice in at your corporate job, what was that experience like? It was, it was not uh, easy in the sense that I had a really good relationship with my boss. And I was responsible for a big division. Right. I, I, I was running a division that was about $100 million in revenue. It was super profitable and we were growing. And um, my boss, obviously, um, like I said, had been really good and had really helped me and, and, and was guiding me. And 
you know, I knew like me leaving, it was like, you know, having Messi leave Barcelona type of thing, right? Where it's like, you know, there's going to be a big void that they're going to need to really think about recruiting and, 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 and whatnot. But I knew it was the right thing for me to do. And, you know, I, I went in and I just told her the truth to say like, hey, this is what's happening. And, you know, it's not that I'm not happy here or anything or you haven't treated me well, but I think this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. But more importantly, I can really go out there and make really good, tremendous impact. I know it's risky because it's a startup because you were talking about the stats about startups, right? But, you know, what's life if you don't take risks, right? You, you, you sometimes have to just go out there and take a risk and see what happens, right? You miss 100% of the shots you never take. So she, she was very understanding and obviously I had two weeks to kind of like help, you know, with the transition and, and getting everything uh, ready. So, so we, we did that. And then after that was done, you know, it, it, it worked well. Um, and, you know, they, they took it graciously and, you know, they, they, they were good about it. But it wasn't the easiest of conversations in the sense that I knew the pressure and the strain I was putting my... Uh, su- supervisor on um, but for me you know my mind was set and I it's something I knew I had to do. So um, you've you've handed your notice in and you've done your two weeks what's day one look like what do you do on day one? Day one was actually quite interesting uh, because day one uh, I go there and uh, we we work within Michael Loeb's office so Michael Loeb is kind of like a venture uh, collective. So he invests in different companies and all, all of those uh, portfolio investments get to use the space he has, um, you know, and, and leverage some of the shared services that he has over there. And I remember, you know, this is not exactly my first day, but it's my third day uh, there. I get an email and they go like, oh, Kuda, you need to come to dinner tonight. Like, come to dinner? It's like, yeah, yeah, there's there's a dinner you, you just need to be there. There's someone that I would love for you to meet. It's like, all right, cool. And then uh, I head over to, to, to Michael's house and uh, with a few other, you know, CEOs from the portfolio companies. And uh, Indra Nui, the former CEO of Pepsi, was having dinner with Michael. And it was this kind of like invitation only uh, dinner with her. And because, you know, Pepsi has a uh, you know, a big snack division, right? They have like so many different snacks that they have, like Lay's and, and so forth and so forth. You know, they thought, you know, we could use that opportunity to even, you know, pick her brain and see how they were looking at kind of like snacks and, and, and so forth and so forth since we were building a, a cookie business. So so that was uh, really interesting. But from, from kind of like me personally, when I literally sat on my decks the first time, we needed to figure out what is the name going to be? Because it was a vision, right? We, we had a vision and we had funding, right? Because Michael and Tony had, had, had raised capital for the business, but we didn't have a name, we didn't have a logo, we didn't have branding, we didn't have all of these different things. So it was now really sitting down and thinking like, okay, what are all the things that need to be done? But more importantly, what's priority, you know, number one? Like what, what are the things that are like, hey, these are the high priority things that we need to knock out. These are the second, you know, level and so forth and so forth. How are we going to build a team? How are we going to go to market? How are we going to allocate funds? So it, it took kind of like a, a week of like really just sitting down and just thinking through all of the different things 
um, that we needed to do and starting to uh, take those first initial baby steps to getting the wheels turning and, and getting the ball rolling. So it was, it was a little bit of an interesting time. And sometimes I actually uh, miss those days, right? Because this is when, you know, you don't have like a fully booked uh, agenda with like calls and meetings. It, it was a little bit more open, right? Where I could really sit down and, and, and think strategically. But now that you have an operating business, you have a team, you have business partners and vendors you're working with, your day kind of like fills up, right? And um, you might not have enough of that strategic uh, free thinking that, that, that you, you used to have when it was still kind of like uh, an, an idea um, in, 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 in progress. So, so you know, that, that's how it was like. But we're, we're quite happy with what we've been able to do to drive growth during a pandemic and, and to just, uh, you know, achieve a lot of success. Well, we're really thrilled with uh, what we've done. Yeah, it's a great story. Um, I'd like to speak to you about your other businesses, um, if you've got any that you particularly want to mention. But I also want to talk to you about the book. So um, have you got um, one, uh, another business that you're particularly proud of? And then um, do you mind talking through this beer method and what, the, what um, other people, maybe business owners, what principles can they use from that? Sure. Which which country are you in Australia or the UK? Where where are you? UK. And the UK. Which which part of the UK? I am near Brighton in a place called Worthing. Okay, cool. So I'll talk about two businesses because they are they have a presence in the UK. Um, so the first business actually is this one. I'll I'll show it to you. And uh, this is signables. And I'm highlighting Cytables because we do work with a lot of the premiership teams. So this is Tottenham Hotspur, Harry Kane, Collectible, uh, Manchester City, uh, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, Chelsea, which is obviously my team, N'Golo Kante, and then uh, the other North London guys, Arsenal, uh, David Louise. So my friend and I, we, we launched this uh, collectibles business and we have officially licensed merchandise uh, with a lot of the premiership teams. We don't have Brighton yet. Um, they don't have a huge fan base here in the US, unfortunately. But um, it's an interesting business because uh, my friend and her dad, they had this crazy idea. And they literally sketched it up, went to the US Patent and Trademark Office and filed, and filed the patent and they got it. And when they got the patent, they were like, okay, now what, right? So my friend, knowing that like I'm in business and I've done a bunch of stuff, she like reaches out and she's like, hey, Kuda, we have this patent to this concept, but we're not quite sure of what to do, right? I'm all about getting these phone calls and business opportunities, right? That's that's what I attract in my life. So anyway, I, I say like, let's meet up for dinner. I want to take a look at a prototype if you have one and we'll see what we could do. So we go for dinner and she shows me the prototype. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, Lauren, you're sitting on gold because if you have this as a patent, let's just approach some of the sports franchises and get them to allow us to have licensing uh, agreements with them and let's launch it. But she didn't really have the relationships, but I did because I was in this big multi-billion dollar company at the time and we, we were working with so many different sports franchises and licensing agreements, both inbound and outbound. So I had um, a good Rolodex of people in the licensing space. So I told her like, hey, we're gonna go to this um, event. 
We're going to meet a couple of people. We'll show them what you have. And if they say yes, or if we get a favorable response, we can create a business and we'll work on it. So we flew to Vegas and what I had predicted would happen, happened. And the first team that signed a deal with us was Paris Saint-Germain, PSG. And um, once PSG signed, it became easy, right? Because we would walk into Chelsea, we flew over to, to, to Stamford Bridge and met with the team. And the moment you say like, hey, we already have an inked deal with PSG, everybody sits a little bit closer because they know like, okay, if you were able to get a deal with PSG, um, then you have something to it. And then we just kept on signing the deal. So that's one. The second one, it's uh, this is my era and it's a personal development brand. And this business uh, was a mixture of me being frustrated with the planners that were in the marketplace and also just by pure accident. I was asked to go speak at a conference uh, about the social impact business I started when I was in college. And I decided to title the speech, This Is My Era. Because I was basically saying like, hey, this is my era because I'm alive and I get to use every single day that I get to make an impact. No opportunity wasted. That's how I define now. And this speech got a resounding you know, response from it, right? I had Harvard call me to go and do the same type of presentation at Harvard. Think about it. Was this the one the in 2014? Nations. Yeah, that was in 2014. And then yeah, I, I the like United the dancing. Nations. Say what? I like the dancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when we did the, the, the dance and my friend Alexander Starr wrote a song called This Is My Era and we, we launched it with the song. And then uh, the following year in 2015, we got invited at the United Nations to go and do a similar type of presentation. And what we did was we worked with the organizing people to help bring Terry Crews um, to the event. And you know, for us, we wanted Terry to join us on the stage and do a dance and do all these different things of which he decided to do. And it was it was really uh, fun and, and, and engaging and they gave, uh, Terry Crews an, an award for, for some of the work that he has been doing. So it was a really cool experience for us to engage with Terry and, 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 and connect with him while we were at, at that conference. But what happened, Tom, was that we wherever, whichever event I would go to, and when I would speak about this is my era, people would always come to me and say like, hey, Kuda, I want to make it my era, but I don't know how. You seem to have figured it out. Can you teach me how to do it? But then I realized like, hey, if I try to like teach people 101, I don't have the time to, to be able to do it. Why don't I create a product which has a process that they can follow? They write what it is that they want to do to make it their error. And then they just follow this process every single day to make it their error. So we created a 90-day planner. And, you know, you write your, your big, hairy, audacious goals that you want to achieve, but then really figure out what is that 90-day milestone that you want to achieve in order for you to make this happen. And then every single day, you just plan, you know, your priorities and the different action steps you need to take to, to make it happen. We started selling it in the U.S., it took off. We started selling it in the U.K., it took off. Our U.K. business is now on par in terms of revenue with the U.S., but there, there, there are less people in the UK than in the US. 
So, so we, we love how we've been able to at least get significant market share in the UK. We launched it in Australia. We're in the process of really expanding into the EU and, and launching other products as well. So we're really excited with, with, with This Is My Era. So, so that's the other business uh, that I, I wanted to touch on. And with regards to the book, uh, The Spear Method, um, remember I was telling you that when I was in corporate America, although I was successful, I wasn't fulfilled. And, you know, in life, a lot of times people tell you that, hey, you know, you should, uh, you know, focus on being successful. And then once you're successful, you can focus on kind of like the things that make you happy. Or there's the other side of the equation. Mm -hmm. We're like, hey, be happy, be a hippie. Don't forget about chasing money and becoming successful and all these other things. So you're kind of like trading one for the other. I didn't really like that. Mm -hmm. So I was like, why do I have to trade? Why can't I have both? Why can't I be successful and fulfilled? And a tragic thing happened that really pushed me to actually uh, focus on, 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 on getting these answers was that my sister died suddenly. And when she tragically died, it really made me think like tomorrow is not, is not guaranteed. She was like 40 years old, right? And at 40, you're thinking like, hey, I'm probably at the halfway point, right? If I die at 80, my life is just getting started, but hers was just taken just like that. And for me, that's when I was like, you know what? Because tomorrow is never guaranteed, I can't waste any more time just pushing this huge desire that I have of really figuring out how to balance success and performance. I need to do it now. So I went on this quest where I started interviewing, you know, self-made millionaires, uh, professional athletes, people who've just accomplished so many crazy things, both successfully in terms of like, you know, financial success, materialistic success, but also they've made a lot of impact. Their foundations, they're giving back, they're happy, you know, uh, in, you know at least from what I could tell. Um, so, so I just started interviewing all these people and through interviewing all these people and also mixing it in with some of my personal experiences, I figured out that there was a framework that you could actually apply for you to achieve both success and fulfillment. And that framework was uh, the SPEAR method, which is the title of the book. And the SPEAR method, the SPEAR is an acronym for Secure Purpose, Plan, Execute, Achieve, and Repeat. Because if you want to be successful and, and, and become fulfilled at the same time, you need to operate within your purpose. Because if you don't have clarity of what your purpose is and you're just doing stuff, you're never going to be fulfilled because some of the stuff that you could be spending a lot of time and energy on are not your calling. So actually taking a step back, right, and really understanding what is your purpose is the first key thing you need to do. And in the book, I have some questions you can kind of like ask yourself, questions you can ask people that are really close to you to help you find your purpose. And then once you find your purpose, you want to plan, right? You want to start thinking about, okay, what am I going to do every day to pursue this purpose? So it's super important for you to plan. And obviously you can use the, this is my era 90 day planner to help with that or any planner or process or method that really works for you. And then once you have your plan, you want to execute because once, what's the point of spending the time finding your purpose, planning it, and then you take zero action to actually, uh, 
attain that purpose, it doesn't make sense. So execution is super important. And I like to say the three most important days in life are the day you're born, the day you find out why, right? That day you find out like, oh, wow, this is my purpose. And each day you act on your why. Because if you're born and you find out why, but you take zero days to, 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 to actually take action on that why, it's like you, you didn't even, it's, it's actually worse than someone who doesn't know their purpose because you know your purpose, you came up with a plan, but you never acted on it, right? So, so that's the third one. And then the fourth piece is achieve because like Newton's third law of motion, whenever you take an action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So it might mean that you achieve 100% of the milestone you want to achieve, or even if it's 2% or 20% or whatever, you're going to achieve something. And what, what you want to then do is whatever achievement you make in terms of like from zero to 100%, you want to then repeat that process of making sure that, you know, you're filtering everything through your purpose, you're planning what you're going to be doing today, this week, this month, you're taking the required action, you achieve whatever it is that you achieve through that action taking, you track that progress, repeat the same process again. And by constantly doing that, remember the eighth one of the world we spoke, we spoke about earlier, which is the compound interest of action. You will ultimately then achieve success and fulfillment because you're operating in your purpose you're planning, you're just not letting the day come to you. You're really spending time really thinking about what you need to do. Yes, your plan might be wrong in the beginning, but you're going to learn quickly that this is the wrong thing to do and you start pivoting towards the right thing. And then if you consistently take action, you start achieving results. And if you keep repeating that process, you become successful and fulfilled. So that's what the SPEAR method is all about. Great summary. You've got a fascinating story and I love the passion. Kuda, where is the best place for people to find you? They can find me in two places. Number one, spearmethod.com. That's uh, my personal website. It's also the website for my book. So you can go there and uh, connect with me. You can uh, read all about my past and current events. So that's the first place. The second place is on Instagram. Kuda at uh, Kuda Biza on Instagram. So K-U-D-A-B-I-Z-A, Kuda Biza on Instagram. That's the second place you can connect with me. Okay, I'll put those in the comments as well. Um, I feel like I've got like tons more questions to ask you. But so uh, anytime you want to come back on, just let me know. And uh, thank you very much for your time and all the value you've provided today. Thank you so much, Thomas. I appreciate it.